Good morning, faithful listeners. I'm Dave Kale, one of your co-hosts of the Riddles in the Dark podcast, and um, we're sorry we're getting a bit of a late start. We hope to start on time today, but uh, we had some prep work to do. And but we didn't. <laughs> yes. So, so it, it was looking promising because I was on it, like, I was up at like quarter of seven. I was like, ha, yes, we'll finally start on time. And then we did. Um, yes. so, Can I just say, like, you know, the fact that we start as close as we do, I have to admit, is pretty noble. You know, since, Dave, you're in California, it's not quite so much for me to try to get myself together by 10 a.m., but... Uh, uh, but let me tell you, uh, I would be less lucid than you are at 7 a.m., I think. So, uh, you know, I, I admire your dedication. You call this lucid. <laughs> but, but anyway, we're here and we're ready to go. And this is a really exciting episode because next two episodes are really exciting. We're doing a two-week-in-a-row, two-part special on the most hotly debated um, um, aspect of the Hobbit films, where are they going to be split? And I know there's many of you, from what I've seen, commenting on on, uh, the Mythgard page and the Facebook page in various places, who think this is a done deal, and we we know exactly where it's going to be split and all that kind of stuff. And and you you may be right, we'll discuss a little bit of that. I, I don't... I think it's less certain than you're making it out. Even if you're right about where the split is, uh, I don't think it's I don't think it's as definitively set as uh, as you indicate. But we'll talk about that. We've got a prediction that that uh, will be will bear on where the split will be, even if it's not exactly about the split um, for this week. And then next week we have a fun prediction that will record the White Council storyline. So um, I say let's uh, quit beating around the bush and um, and jump right to it. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, basically, I think, that, to me, the big issue here, I mean, of course, it's an interesting question as to where the two films are going to be split. Um, but really, it just kind of touches off a much larger question. And, and the reason we're doing a, a sort of a larger two-part episode for this one is that there's so much more to talk about with this because this is a big structural issue and we've talked about some structural things they've come up as we've been discussing some smaller issues like especially when we were talking about the battle of Bazaar. but um i think in particular uh what to me is really interesting or rather the larger and more interesting ramifications of the split question are are what exactly is going to be included? How are they going to be structuring this? What kinds of overall storytelling decisions are they going to be making? Um, how are they going to be theming these two films? When you think about, for instance, some of the choices that went into the splits in the Lord of the Rings films, um, we can see, I think, some pretty interesting things. Uh, you know, for instance... Um, we think of the, I mean, of course, now there, the split was already a less sort of fraught question because you had the natural splits with the three books and the three films. Um, however, you know, of course, they did make some choices and they shifted some things around um, and uh, and did the splits differently. Like, of course, the the you know the some of the big famous changes, shifting Boromir's death to the end of the Fellowship of the Ring. Uh, ending the two towers after the Battle of Helm's Deep, but prior to the confrontation with Saruman, and also shifting, so shifting both the confrontation with Saruman and uh, the fight between Sam and Shelob to the return of the king. Um, oh, and then, of course, cutting the confrontation with Saruman entirely from the theatrical edition. But anyway, uh, so, like, you know, 
and 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 those things like as i say those are those are big storytelling decisions that they made and you can see some of the things that they're doing um that they're doing in those so to me this is this is sort of the bigger question the actual question of you know at what plot moment are the movies going to break is an interesting one but it is only to me the the kind of tip of the iceberg um and i think that there are these there are, there are really bigger questions what is the story of the first movie really going to be are they going to do as you know dave i think you suggested before are they going to um follow which they could do the model um if you want to call it a model but anyway if they are they going to do a similar kind of thing that uh the filmmakers did when they split harry potter and the deathly hallows where they basically made the first film into more of a travel film you know a travel adventure film and the second film into a battle film that could certainly be done i mean if we certainly if we have the majority of the journey of bilbo and the dwarves on the front end in the first half, and then the second half is all Lake Town, Dale, and the Lonely Mountain, and the Battle of Five Armies. That certainly is one thing that can happen. But you see, like to me, that like you know that that is the the bigger and the much more interesting question. What does what does the particular choice make? If they do, if they were to split it earlier on, um, then. Yeah, I mean, it has a, it has a really big impact, especially thinking about how the first half of the story is going to go. They're obviously, I think, uh, I don't think they can split it in the sort of center of the book. I, I, that I just, I, I kind of don't think would work because the, um, I don't know, the sort of theatrical stuff, because basically where that would be, that would be in Mirkwood prior to the spiders. Um, immediately prior to the spiders. Uh, so, and that I, I, that I think is, would not be a very interesting place to split the films. Um, I could imagine a, uh, uh, you know, a very early split, uh, like basically a pre-Merkwood split, but that would leave a, an enormous amount of stuff for the second film. So it's kind of hard for me to imagine that. Um, especially but if- when, especially when you, if you consider sort of what are the things that they will want to, to um, really drill down on and 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 review and sort of expose a lot of details, uh, the battle. I, I, I that's why. I, that's why I think the the Harry Potter example is so illustrative to me because they have it. I mean, obviously, it's a very different kind of book, but in terms of in terms of sort of narrative structure and and pacing, it has a very similar kind of setup in that the first oh maybe uh, more than half the book, the first two thirds of the book is kind of is sort of them know. camping in the wood. Oh, sorry. Um. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I was gonna be a little more. Uh, I was gonna be a little more uh, charitable and say it was them traveling, you know, doing yes. things, going, yes. you know, on a quest, and then and then they end up in the Which final location. So they get a tent most of the time. Sorry, now that was just one of my one of my chief complaints about the Deathly Hallows yes. was the doing some, I, 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 I could have done social some, dancing. <laughs> I could have I could have I could have done with slightly less camping. Yeah. In it, I have to admit, but um, but but no, I, I, look, I, I sorry, I did not come here to disparage Harry Potter. And the Deathly Hallows, but yes, no, exactly. Especially with the you know sort of their quest for the for the Hallows and the Horcruxes, and then sort of the final confrontation. I mean, I I agree. I mean, that's that is a really interesting um, shape. I think that was a very logical choice for the filmmakers. Um, 
And uh, yeah, I mean, I agree. I can see a similar kind of thing happening um, with uh, with the Hobbit films. If you have the, I mean, if the if they split it, which seems to be the general consensus. I mean, saying the general consensus, uh, I, I think because this is not people guessing, of course, because we, we we're not simply looking at the story of the Hobbit uh, as it's depicted in the book and trying to figure out if you were doing that, what would you, where would you split it? There are two other factors involved. One is uh, the the rest of the story, the other. Background story, the later material that Tolkien added to and drew around the the original Hobbit story, which clearly the films are going to be incorporating. So there's there's you know how do you add that stuff in and how does that affect uh, the pacing of the films and the story that they're telling? Yeah, that could as uh, Trish Lambert points out in the chat room on uh, on the Middle Earth Network radio page that that could really change the balance sort of in the calculus in terms of, of, of content. I mean, my my inclination is that they'll push the split closer and closer to the end of the film to leave more room for Battle of Five Armies, but if they add 45 minutes of uh, assault on Necromancer to the first film, that could really change things. Yeah, I mean, exactly. It's It really is a wild card, because if you think about it, I mean, the... Well, actually, let me just let me finish the, the other thing I was... Thing. Well, let me finish one thought before I move on to, to analyzing that. Um, and that other thought was, as I said, there are two things which change how we analyze the story and how we analyze this question. One is that extra material that we have to factor in. But the other thing is, of course, the direct evidence that we have um, that's been released out of New Zealand. Um, you know, the production videos and everything else, the glimpses that we've been given. So we do actually have some evidence to work with as far as what they're doing and what they're planning. Uh, now, they haven't explicitly said, um, you know, here are the things that are definitely going to be in, in film one and here's stuff that's going to be in film two. Um, but it seems to me that the general... The general wisdom, and you tell me if you think I'm right about this, Dave, that the general wisdom um, of, you know, Tolkien film fans is that Peter Jackson is going to be holding close to the vest anything related to film two, and that all of the stuff that he has allowed to be revealed um, is stuff which is film one stuff. So in order to build anticipation for this film. So that seems to be... So it seems to me that the the the, the popular consensus about where the split is likely to be is after the barrels because we've seen the barrels you know we, we there have been there's been a, a, you know a fair number of uh, pictures and footage and stuff related to shooting the the barrel ride and therefore that seems to be a kind of endpoint um, that seems to be the chronological endpoint verifiable endpoint um, of the material that has been released um, yeah according to According to sort of going back over my research over last year uh, when putting together show notes for the the Secrets of the Hobbit podcast with Father Roderick, that's we've uh, we've seen pictures of the barrels um, multiple times. Um, although, like as I look at them, I realize that it's 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 not quite so straightforward as that. Um, but yeah, we've we've seen a fair amount of footage and content um, here and there. Uh, basically, the the certainly the last chronologically in terms of the Hobbit chronology, the last thing that we've been able to see is um, uh, the barrel um, scenes. Mm-hmm. We we have mm-hmm. seen leaked footage of what appears to be Dale 
but uh, but it wasn't intentionally released by the the um, uh, it wasn't intentionally released by the production. It was some like OneRing.net spies took pictures of it, so I don't think that counts. Um, but as far as I can tell, if I you know, and people in the chat room, please correct me if I'm wrong, but we've gotten to see um, in terms of official press releases, we've seen lots and lots of Merkwood. Um, we have right. seen Bjorn's Hall. We have seen, uh, or what people believe to be Bjorn's Hall. They also thought it might be um, Radagast the Brown's um, uh, dwelling. We've gotten to see pieces of the Elven King set from a long time ago. Um, we've seen uh, several times photos and even and even footage of the barrel scenes being shot. Um, I, there's a nuance to that that I'm going to add in a second. Um, in the trailer, we've gotten to see Gandalf at Dol Guldor, but I think the open question there is when, in the chronology of the story, are we seeing him there? I think there's an argument to be made that uh, that, that maybe most of that footage is from the sort of what will end up being flashback scenes. Um, we have gotten to see Gandalf with Galadriel in terms of White Council scenes, although that's in Rivendell and not um, uh, anywhere else, so it's not that could well be when the, the, the company is in Rivendell, which would be early in the story. Uh, right. And there was a production video where we did get to see Christopher Lee putting on Saruman makeup costume, but we didn't see him in a scene. Um, the, the caveat I want to add on the barrels, um, and again, if I say something incorrect, please correct me, chat room, but... Um, uh, the the barrels scenes that I remember seeing and set picks that I remember seeing are were from really early in 2011, and it was when they were doing test shots, basically of of what I presume, I the basically um, they had these giant pink barrels, which right. I presume they're doing it like that because they're going to be CGing on top of them. Um, and, and this was from like early 2011. And so I don't think they were actually really doing the, the principal filming then. I think they were just, uh, testing their, um, their, you know, getting some test footage and then seeing how it works and whether they'll be able to CG on top of it. Now we have gotten to see in production videos, we did get to see them actually doing what appeared to be the real filming of the barrel footage, but it wasn't a lot. And so... Um, my thought on on Peter Jackson's comment, because uh, because that that's really what nailed it when when Peter Jackson in the most recent production um, video said basically, uh, we're here on the set of the second film in particular we're on the set of Lake Town, but I'm not allowed to show you this and I'm not allowed to show you this cool thing over here or this thing over there because you're not allowed to see it until 2013. People said, aha, anything we've seen so far is in the first film. And moving forward, we can't see anything else until 2013 because it's in the second film. I, I, I'm not I, – I get why they say that. I'm not 100 percent convinced. I think it's possible that somebody at some point decided we should draw a line. And so I think we can be confident to, to say that we won't get to see much, if anything, of, of the second film from Lake Town on. But that doesn't necessarily mean that anything we've seen is automatically in the first film. Yeah, I mean, I, I I agree in general. I mean, I don't think. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that they're they're 
you know, being rather coy about this. And I think that, you know, I, Peter Jackson is sort of obviously showing some gamesmanship in that moment, you know, when he's like, I can't show you this awesome thing over here. Um, you know, <laughs> that's, 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 that's kind of a fun line. Um, yes. I'm not quite ready to take everything <laughs> said there to the bank. Um, Especially since, you know, the, the, the promotion of mystery and discussion is, is one of the things that they're going to want to do. So, um, so yeah, I, I, and the other thing that I think is that I'm willing to go along with the general wisdom of the barrel ride coming to the end. And in some ways I do find that, you know, when I think of, of moments in the chronology of the Hobbit plot that are kind of satisfying pause moments, um, I do agree that that's a very good one. Um, you know, that there are, there are several places which are not just, you know, sort of moments of pause between action, but, but are really significant turning points in the story as a whole. Um, and that's a really big one. Uh, of course, there are several, um, you know, moments which are, which are serious turning points for Bilbo. I mean, there are three moments which are really emphasized by the narrator as moments when Bilbo does something which which makes a real change, which marks a real change in his career. The first is when he wakes up prior to Gollum. The second is when he wakes up in the dark uh, when the spider is capturing him and he kills the spider and names his sword. And the third is when he chooses to go down the tunnel uh, to uh, see Smaug uh, the first time. Um, but, but, you know, that moment before Lake Town, that moment uh, when they're getting out of the barrels and deciding to go into Lake Town is a moment when the whole story shifts, I think, in an even bigger way. It's not itself, I think, a crucial moment for Bilbo's personal career, but it's a huge moment for Thorin. And uh, it's the moment where Thorin's character is literally transformed. I, I mean, he, 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 he is... And, and, and I am using the word literally, quite literally there, and not just emphatically. Um, he first, he's the first one who crawls out of the barrel, and Tolkien has this wonderful description of him looking like a, a dog that's been le- forgotten and left in a kennel for a week. Um, and uh, so, I mean, he looks savage and worn and famished and bedraggled and dirty and wet. And... Uh, and you could you, you wouldn't even know that it was Thorin if you couldn't tell by his the tarnished silver tassel on his hood. But then, as soon as he steps into the guardhouse outside of Lake Town and declares himself, "I am Thorin, son of Thray and son of Thror, king under the mountain. I have returned." Uh, no, and I have returned. I return. Um, but anyway, as soon as he does that, this this change comes over him, and you know the narrator has that wonderful line, "And he looked it." Um, so he's, 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 he's transformed. He is now the king under the mountain and he has this stature. And now we are suddenly telling the story of, you know, we, we've seen, this has ceased to be the story of the journey to the lonely mountain and has become the story of the return of the king under the mountain spoken of old in old songs. Um, so, you know, it's a really important shift in the overall story. And so therefore, you know, from a purely Hobbit book standpoint, I am deeply sympathetic with the idea. I mean, I quite like the idea that that's where they would split the two films. However, however, there is a heck of a lot of material to cover, especially if they're going to be adding white council stuff. I mean, there's a lot to do unless they're going to be really seriously trimming down some of the things that happened earlier in the story. Now I can believe that that's going to happen, of course. Um, But again, note that we are back to, the sort of paradoxical point that we've been at before, um, you know, where 
many people out there in the world are laughing at like, oh, how can they squeeze two epic films out of this tiny little Hobbit book? Um, You know, this is just a shameless money-making move on the part of the filmmakers. Um, And now, you know, in our discussion, we keep coming to the point where we're like, how will they possibly fit in all of the incredible material (laughs) from this book into only two films? Um, But of course, no one would deny that 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 they are trying to uh, make lots of money off of this. Well, I mean, they wouldn't. They wouldn't do it. Yeah, they wouldn't do it if they couldn't. But (laughs) yes, exactly. That doesn't have to be the only reason for doing it. Right. Exactly. It. Yeah. No. I mean, there's. It. It doesn't mean that there is. You know, not enough story actually to fit two films. There certainly is. Um, So, I mean, I think about. You know, when you think about even just, you know, forgetting the White Council for a minute and you just think about the stuff that there is to cover in the Hobbit story. You know, you have the initial frame material that we know they're going to do. And I'm delighted they are the frame stuff with Frodo and, you know, Bilbo recollecting the story later on. Um, And then you've got to introduce the dwarves and do the whole unexpected party business and Thorin and Gandalf's discussions of like, do we take this useless git with us or not? And then you've got, you know, his departure from the Shire. You've got the stuff with the trolls, which we've already talked about. So, you know, you have the first adventure with the trolls. You go to Rivendell. You'd think, well, that could be done really briefly. It's like the shortest chapter in the entire book. Um, So uh, one of the shortest chapters. Uh, So, you know, hey, surely we could spend like three minutes in Rivendell. Oh, no, wait. Except obviously from the trailer, we're going to be expanding all the White Council stuff while we're in Rivendell. So we can't. We, you know, we have to spend some, some significant time there in the film. And, uh, and then also we have, you know, so then after that, we go into the mountains. We've got to be captured by the goblins and the whole escape from the, you know, Gandalf rescuing them from the goblins and the fight with the great goblin. That's not a small thing. Um, then their escape in the wolf glade, like seriously, like they're going to downplay the, you know, Gandalf's fireworks and the, the wolves and everything and the rescue by the eagles. They've got to do that, right? And then, uh, and then Bjorn's house after that. Well, we've got to set up because there's no way we're going to not do an awesome Bjorn uh, coming into the battle at the end. So we've got to set up his character. So, um, and so if anything, I was assuming they were going to amplify, especially the you know the moment when Bjorn sneaks off to to go nab the goblin in Warg. I was kind of uh, thinking that could be made into an action sequence. So I, I would kind of expect, if anything, more of Bjorn rather than less. Um, and then we still have the whole Merkwood sequence with, you know, going in. Maybe we cut out the, the black stream and the, the you know, the, the, the black and white deer and everything else, the sort of mysterious elements. Maybe, maybe that gets cut. But you've still got to have, do you get Bomber falling asleep? You know, you still anyway get the capture with the spiders. And then if you have on top of that the whole capture by the Elven King and the rescue by Bilbo from the, from the Elven King and the barrel ride, that's a lot of material without any extra uh, White Council stuff. So that's my biggest reservation uh, about it. I said from a, from a book standpoint, I love the, uh, the prior to entrance to Lake Town moment as a stopping point, but I think it's, um, it's a tall order to, to cram all that material into the first film. Yeah. So, um, uh, on that note, let me introduce another piece of evidence. There's this, um, fun, uh, comment from Evangeline Lilly, who of course is playing the 
the much beloved um, Peter Jackson original <laughs> character known as Tariel, the the hotly anticipated, right. the uh, purist's favorite. Yes, yes. yes. <laughs> uh, she has this comment from back in January where she's talking about her character, and and of course you know waxing philosophically about how she's basically the most important character in the film and the center oh, of well, everything. Yeah. Oh. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I think that's obvious. Yeah, she's a big shot in the army, and she knows how to wield any weapon, and she has a bow and multiple daggers. Yeah, I'm sure she's probably going to be bristling with swords, because that's right. totally consistent with, with Polk himself. Totally. <laughs> um, anyway, she says, uh, uh, on this particular topic, stop, stop making fun of her now, she, <laughs> she says, Tariel's not in the first film very much, said Lily of her presence in The Hobbit and Unexpected Journey. She comes into the first film near the end and has a very small part to play, uh, uh, but her role in the second film is much more involved. Although, I have to say, when I first read the scripts and took the job, she had a lot less going on in the second film. I think the role is becoming a bit more demanding than I expected it to be. It's a lot for me to do now, which is a lot lot of fun, but it's a little more pressure. So uh, I think there's two ways to read this. Um, the, the kind of um, uh, more straightforward reading of it, which I think a lot of people have taken, is that um, uh, she, she's going to be the jailer, and her small role in the first film versus expanded role in the second film means that in the first film, she's basically just going to show up and be maybe standing there when the dwarves are being um, uh, uh, led down or, you know, interrogated by the Elven King and then led down into the dungeons. And that the second film is going to start with their um, uh, liberation from jail. And so that will be her expanded role. Um, you know, essentially getting drunk with the butler and falling asleep <laughs> and that kind of thing. Uh, I think the other way to read it is that by ex when she's talking expanded role, what she means is that she's going to be um, basically single-handedly turning the tide of the Battle of Five Armies or in shield surfing and whatnot. Um, well, the, yeah, I mean, and honestly, that latter is the primary thing that I would expect. I mean, yes. uh, her role in the second film, I would expect her to be you know, essentially like the Legolas, uh, you know, the, I, I would kind of expect her to be positioned as like the Orlando Bloom of uh, the Battle of Five Armies, essentially that, you know, yep. so, I mean, so basically I, I'm not, I, I'm not a hundred percent convinced that it necessarily means more than that. She could also have a larger role in the, um, I mean, if she is, if we are to understand her to be some kind of counselor to the king as well, I mean, if she's more than just a soldier or just a guard mm -hmm. um, who acts heroically, then she could also very well be involved in the later stuff, the Arkenstone things. And, uh, um, yep. and uh, you know, and, and there are ways in which I could see that working. I mean, there, there, there could be, here I am trying to preemptively defend changes that we're speculating Peter Jackson might make. Uh, so, you know, this is, uh, this is enormously tenuous, but of course there is something kind of appealing. If she is the guard from whom Bilbo steals the keys in order to let the, um, the dwarves out of prison, then there is something kind of, kind of nicely poetic about her being also involved when he comes to hand over the Arkenstone. Um, so, you know, uh, I could see her having a role there or, you know, just being present 
or taking part in discussions about what they do about Thorin, you know, when the army's there in front of the gates and, uh, and you know, all the stuff prior to the breaking out of the, of the Battle of Five Armies. You know, one could imagine her having some kind of a role there, too. Um, so yeah. what, do you, what do you think? Do you, do you think this... Um, do you think this is evidence, one way or the other, about where the split will be? Um, do, you, do you think there's any credence to the... It, it seems to me that the second most popular opinion about where the split will be, and this is being expressed in the chat room, is um, uh, before is basically right after the dwarves capture. Um, the, right. In fact, I, I imagine that's probably the second most likely place that it would be, that, that, that they'll go the route of like, oh no, they've been captured, what's going to happen to them now? And that will be the end, leaving us with sort of a cliffhanger of, they've, you know, will they escape? We, of course, we already right. know that they do. But, um, right, right. And I wonder, I wonder if, um, if this comment from her maybe is indicative of, of that, that. So she talks about the role being, you know, from the beginning more substantial in the second film than in the first film, and then it's been gradually expanded as time has gone on. So I wonder if what she means is initially her role was just to be the jailer who lets them escape, and then as things have gone on, they've given her given her more of a role in the Battle of Five Armies, or maybe even the Arkenstone affair to uh, to redeem herself. So do you? Well, think, I'm not sure. Think it's I'm not sure. I mean, it's, I think it's possible. But sort of my sense from the beginning uh, of the you know. From the beginning of the Evangeline Lilly Fuhrer among, <laughs> among purists, when that news was first announced, my understanding was always, and maybe I was just making assumptions, perhaps they're unwarranted, but my, my own understanding um, from the start was that she was going to be involved in a military way. I mean, I was, I was instantly picturing, you know, her one-upping Legolas's Mumuk feet uh, in the in the uh, Battle of Five Armies. So um, again, maybe that was just my own assumption, and there isn't direct evidence for that. But I think because I remember her making comments at the very beginning, I believe about um, you know that her character being you know being tough and doing a lot of butt kicking and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that's what I that so I had always been assuming. That the Battle of Five Armies is going to be the primary showcase of her. Uh, um, I, I agree, but it's just that in this particular interview, what she she references early versions of the script, um, right? And so what I'm wondering, I, I think from the very first time that her character was announced, um, ever since we've known she was going to be in it, I think the version of the script that she's been working on was the was the later one where she has this butt kicking role in the Battle of Five Armies. But I think it's possible that. Before she was ever announced, before we even knew her character was going to be in the film, you know, when they first sent a, a, an early draft of the script to her saying, hey, you want to be in the movie, that maybe maybe they hadn't quite fleshed out the Battle of Five Armies at that point. Um, and so maybe. she was just going off of like, well, it looks like I'm just like some doofus that lets them escape from the jail. <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just, I'm just sorry. It's just that uh, conjures really funny images in my mind of like their pitch to her, you know, being like, "Hey, so we have this awesome role for you." Um, but anyway, uh, you get to be a doofus. Yeah, <laughs> you get to be the doofus. But you're in the Hobbit. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, but you're yeah, a doofus okay. elf warrior woman. So isn't that yeah, awesome? That's true. Well, okay. You get to be Here's... the first. You get to be the first idiotic elf ever portrayed on <laughs> in a Peter Jackson, Lord of uh, Tolkien film. 
The first right. one we ever see totally screw up. Right, exactly. Well, okay, here's, here's the other thing that I'd say about that, is that I think that it is... I think that there is... I, I'm perfectly willing to believe that she is the guard, because I think it's infinitely more likely that she's the guard than that she's the butler. And I mention those two because they're the two that are mentioned. And so far, Peter Jackson has actually shown himself to be at least a little bit reluctant simply to add characters flatly. I mean, just add, completely um, introduce a character where there was none. He'll take a character and he'll expand it and, and really change. I mean, like you think of the way... But I mean, but really, there are very few characters which are simply and, and simply fabricated from whole cloth uh, by, by, by Peter Jackson. He'll take, for instance, Haldir um, and give him this greatly expanded role uh, in in the two towers, well, that's you know in the Fellowship of the Ring and the two towers, that's fine. But of course, Haldir's in the book, and 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 you know, and Haldir, you know, we do meet him, and then we meet him again. Obviously, his role is very different, and it's greatly expanded in the films. But he's there. Uh, the same is true of uh, you know two of the two of the 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 writers of Rohan that we see by name, Gambling uh, uh, and uh, Hama. Right. I mean, they, again, those, he's taken characters from the books. Now he's changed them, and he's he's given them different roles, and he's uh, he's doing different things with them. But he still didn't just invent random guys. You think also the dude? I don't remember his name. Faramir, second in command, who dies in Osgiliath. Um, but it's like the same thing there. I mean, he had people working under him, and uh, and and he and Peter Jackson just seems to have... I mean, because we meet others of the Rangers of Athelion over there with Faramir in the Two Towers. And so, so you know, very rarely has he just taken... Um, it, it has happened. Um, the most notable instance I can think of off the top of my head from the Lord of the Rings films is that, like, deformed elephant man orc guy who's commanding the, uh, the army in the attack on Minas Tirith. Yes, um, but see, even there, he's taking like Gothmog, who is the one who takes over after the yep. uh, after the Witch King dies. But I, I mean, I think that that and that I think is simply a misunderstanding. He's one of the Nazgul, uh, you know. He's like the, whatever. But uh, um, but anyway, as you say, even there, there's like by name is at least connected uh, yeah. to something referred to in the books. So therefore, I would suspect that he would do a similar thing, and we do in fact meet. Well, three elves, the Elven King, of course, and then we also meet the butler and the captain of the guard, and we kind of meet, you know, the raftmen of the elves, and, uh, and the, you know, the elves who are rolling the barrels into the hole. Mm-hmm. So, clearly, if he's going to do a similar thing, if he's going to take, you know, an alluded-to elf uh, and expand that person's role... Um, and transform it. I mean, of course, this is an even more significant transformation than most of them by, you know, switching genders and, uh, and all that. But nevertheless, I, I, I get the captain of the guard. The captain of the guard is not named. The butler is. I, the butler is the only elf who gets a name, including the Elven King, who's only ever just called the Elven King. But we know that the butler is named Galleon. So there you go. Yeah. Um, uh, so, so it's almost certainly not him, again, besides which he's not going to want... Uh, Evangeline Lilly waiting tables. Anyhow, he's going to want her uh, with swords. So yeah. So 
So, Captain of the Guard, it, it, it makes perfect logic in the context of the adaptation of Tolkien's works that we've seen Peter Jackson doing. Um, so that I guess, take a character who, yeah. who at least at least was was uniquely identified, if not right. given an actual name. Right. And 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 if he's going to expand on a character, he'll do that rather than just invent one out of thin air, because that would really provoke the wrath of the fan base. Yeah, and I do. I, so, so that's that. That's what I would honestly expect. And so, this seems to me perfectly plausible that she's the one who gets the keys stolen from her. So do you do you think that that could be evidence that maybe they they don't escape until the second film? I mean, I, it's. I, I think it's possible to read it that way, but I don't find it very compelling uh-huh. um, because I would think that. Um, I, I, I could easily see, I mean, if, if the role has expanded, I could very easily see um, the initial conception of the role being, you're the one who gets the keys stolen from you uh, at the end of the first film, and then you come back in the second film and are, you know, you're a captain and you kick butt in the Battle of Five Armies. Like, I, I could totally see that as the initial conception, but then having her be involved, like get more lines and, uh, you know, be involved with the Elven King and with all of the sort of discussions and things that lead up to, we could see her taking more of a personal interest, even coming down to Lake Town. I don't know. I mean, again, we, we get elves there. We get the raftmen of the elves. Um, you know, I could see her, uh, being more actively involved in the second film uh, as part of the, you know, Elven King follow-up to the escape of the dwarves and then to the death of Smaug. Um, so, so yeah, I, I could, I could, I, I, I could definitely imagine that, that that's what she's referring to and that it doesn't necessarily mean that there's been a change in the shift or that that role has been expanded in the shift. Um, I mean, it, it's possible, but I don't find it compelling for that reason. Yep. That's a, I, I kind of a concur. Um, I, increasingly, at least to me, the most compelling things, uh, the most compelling reasoning that I have regarding where the split is, is is less based on all these little sort of external pieces of evidence and more just where I think it fits best. So right. um, let's let's uh, toss this out here. There, there. Um, uh, if if the split is not going to be you know um, somewhere in the middle of the barrel ride you know they're coming around to bend they see the lonely mountain or they're arriving in Lake Town bumping up against the shores where do you think it would be it seems it seems based on some of the things we've been talking about that maybe it could be after they're captured by the elves but before they've escaped so that there's a bit of a cliffhanger but the one thing about that is it it really doesn't add in terms of film screen time <coughs> excuse me in terms of screen time i don't think it does much to mitigate the issues that you were pointing out yeah yeah <clears throat> no i mean it would have to be a in order for there to be for it to, to to for there really to be less to cover um or you know to to, to shift that yeah you would have to change more than that i mean you're talking about really no more than a minute or two of of footage necessarily that could uh could continue that on i do think that the the time like after the spiders and at the capture by the elves um is a is a is a pretty good place i could see that um I mean, I could imagine it earlier. I think it's given how much we've seen of Mirkwood, it's really hard to imagine that we're not going to get through most of Mirkwood. At least their, you know, their 
trip through prior to the elves. Um, it's really hard to imagine we're not going to get that in this film, given how much we've seen. Yeah. So I don't think we can go much earlier than that. I, I agree. And I think also you start going back that far in order to create room for White Council content, you're now cramming a whole bunch of extra content into the second film. And, right. uh, and you're not going to be able to spend a lot of time <clears throat> um, with Bilbo and, and Smaug, with Bilbo um, and the dwarves in Lake Town and some of the politics there. And, and the fact that they've, for example, cast like the, you know, Stephen Fry as the master of Lake Town means that they're, they're going to at least spend some time with him on the screen dealing with some yeah. of the politics of Lake Town. So, yes. I mean, that to me, in terms of the time stuff, the big things that, that really, really push me in the direction of, of them doing sort of a late split are the fact that I think that they're going to want to do the entire Bilbo Smaug, um, uh, encounter on screen. And, I think that could end up being a good 20, 30 minutes. The the Battle Five Armies, I'm sure they're going to milk that. That's going to be a good 45 minutes, maybe an hour, kind of like Harry Potter and Deathly Hallows. So right. you're already running up to like an hour and a half film, I think, with just those two scenes, potentially. And, uh, maybe. and so, like, it's hard to imagine them cramming um, the escape from the Elven King's dungeons and, and a whole bunch of other things into this film. Uh, that's why I, I really, I think a late split seems more likely to me. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. Um, especially, as I say, combined with the, with the cues that we've seen, um, the, uh, rather with the clues we've been given by Peter Jackson about Mirkwood. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. No, I think that's I think that's right, especially since and again, from a storytelling standpoint, I would say I like it. That is from the standpoint of telling the Hobbit story, the late Hobbit story, the 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 the, the, the assimilated to the Lord of the Rings Hobbit story. Yep. Um from the point of view of that story, I think it's actually kind of neat, especially if they choose to save the majority of the White Council action for the second film. Um now this is tricky. Uh and and this we'll get into talking about this more next week of course, but um but I, I you know one way to play this again thinking as I was saying at the beginning in big picture storytelling terms, one of the things that happens, one of the things that happens in the Hobbit book itself, and one thing that happens in the 1937 Hobbit is that the story grows up. It starts off uh, you know very very sort of simple and uh and funny, but the tone shifts over the course of the book until at the end it really becomes quite serious. Uh, this is one of the things that uh, when C.S. Lewis was reading the drafts of The Hobbit that Tolkien gave him, that Lewis commented on. He's like, you know, all of a sudden, um, you know, and he, he, he compared it to saying like, uh, he compared it to The Wind in the Willows, saying, you know, <coughs> how it would sound if all of the sudden uh, the, uh, the, the sort of the conflict uh, the fight over Toad Hall at the end turned into like a serious Norse or Anglo-Saxon, uh, you know, tragic battle story with everybody dying. Um, you know, it's just like the, the shift of tone he found really sudden. Um, and all of a sudden the story is a very serious story at the end. Well, I think that there are, there, there are some really interesting ways in which Peter Jackson can play that and can work the, the White Council stuff into it. Um, can, you know, sort of show at the beginning that there are these other things going on. 
you know, Bilbo starts off, doesn't really have any idea what, even what he's getting himself into. But of course, as we move through the story, we discover that even once we too become acclimated to what Bilbo is getting himself into in this journey, that that itself is only a tiny part of the whole story. Um, and so having the second film being kind of emphasizing the wider theater of, uh, you know, of, of, of what, of the significance of what's going on, this, you know, building up to the battle of five armies, not only as big epic battle sequence, but also as, you know, momentous political event in the history of middle earth. Um, you know, I, that basically, I think the white council stuff could really be used to build that understanding as we go. And so we get set up for it in the first film, but not that much of it happens until the second film that I could see, um, which would, enable them to be able to fit more of that, uh, you know, Hobbit and Dwarf journey material uh, into the first film uh, and be able to kind of save some of that stuff. Now, this is a challenge. This is what I said just a couple minutes ago I wanted to come back to. The, the difficulty that this creates is, or well, not the difficulty, but anyway, the change that it puts them in for is it does change the chronological sequence in the book. Um, Gandalf is finished with his business down south, whatever that business was, which is quite unclear until the very end of the book. Um, that is his, his sorting the necromancer with the help of the White Council. Mm-hmm. Um, that ha- that's done by the time they arrive at Lake Town. Um, and because Gandalf starts to journey northward and, of course, as we know, gets there after Smaug's death and right before the Battle of the Five Armies. So, um, so in the actual chronology of the 1937 Hobbit, um, it, you know, it's, um, he's, he's pretty well settled. He's, he's, uh, uh, you know, the, the White Council story is over. Now, of course, the White Council story hadn't really been fully envisioned at that point, so there's not much to say about it. It's just Gandalf's business uh, that doesn't concern this book. Um, now, you know, so I mean, I have no reason to think that Peter Jackson would hesitate for a minute to change that timeline, but there are... But it leads to these larger questions of how are we going to inter uh, to interlock these two stories, and that seems to me one of the really interesting and tricky things in the Lord of the Rings. Of course, we always had at least two, and sometimes three. Um, no, usually three. Um, different stories which we're going back and forth between. You know, we've got Merry and Pippin in Isengard, and we've got the Battle of Helm's Deep going on, and we've got Frodo and Sam traveling to Mordor, and. Um, you know, so we have all of these different things happening at once. Well, here we're going to have two major plot threads, at least the White Council stuff uh, and the uh, and the the Hobbit and Dwarf journey stuff and the and the, you know, the quest for Erebor. So the question is, in my mind, how, especially in the second film, are they going to be interweaving these two things? Um, because the chronology is not clear and the relationship between the two is less clear. All of the threads come together, of course, in The Lord of the Rings at the Black Gate and the destruction of the ring. And the timing, of course, becomes itself a major issue in the story. Since Frodo and Sam must even now be approaching the mountain, we must go to the gate and sacrifice ourselves so as to distract Sauron and keep him occupied in the north so that he doesn't notice them creeping towards the mountain in the south. Um... Or in the middle, but anyway, that you know. So the the, the actual inter interaction between the chronologies of those things, between the timing of the two different stories, uh, becomes a central part of the storytelling. 
is that going to happen in some, are they going to be trying to do a similar kind of thing? Are things going to be coming together? Uh, those two stories, are they going to be more directly interrelated like that? Like they become at the end of the Lord of the Rings, or are they just going to be kind of paralleling them? Exactly. How is that going to be handled? We can talk about this more next week, I think, but to me in thinking towards, you know, these larger narrative issues about the first and second films and the consequences of the choices of how to divide the material. That, to me, is one of the biggest and most fascinating questions. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, we, When we were setting out to plan these episodes, we, we, sort of, uh, we sort of agreed with everyone that probably the, the split was, was – that, that probably everyone was right and the split was going to be somewhere around in the barrel ride. Uh, but we think that – um, how the White Council and the conflict with Dol Guldor is going to be handled is a much, much uh, more open question. And specifically, if there is to be a battle of some kind on screen, um, where that would fit in and how that will fit with the Battle of Five Armies and yes. and how that sort of affects the pacing and tone of the story. You know, is it at the end of the first film? Is it the beginning of the second film or maybe as Trish just suggests in the chat room maybe maybe it will be presented as a flashback <laughs> um, <laughs> which the battle of five armies no the the, the dull gold or Gandalf shows up yeah. at the confrontation over the Arkansas and they're like hey where have you been oh well let me tell you about the let's take a half hour detour uh, from <laughs> you know we got the we got the the uh, Gandalf and Orthanc story that way. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's true. It's it's certainly not without precedent. Uh, yes, yeah, but I mean, I think the the reason I think that that's very unlikely though is that the the story of um, in the context of the you know what I call the assimilated Hobbit, the Hobbit assimilated into the Lord of the Rings world. Um, in the assimilated not Hobbit. The Borg. No, 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 not at all. Uh, in the assimilated Hobbit story, um, the, you know, the bit which was a small sidelight, much smaller even than Gandalf's capture by Saruman, um, in the Lord of the Rings story, uh, the, the, you know, Gandalf and what Gandalf does down south is an enormously tiny part of the story originally, but in the assimilated Hobbit, it becomes not only much, much bigger and much more important, it becomes the whole story. That is, the Battle of Five Armies and the quest for Erebor itself are made into a kind of footnote to this, to the conflict with the necromancer. Um, that, that, that they become only truly important because of the significance that they have for, um, for the war with Sauron that is now clearly brewing because that conflict between the White Council uh, and Sauron down in Dol Guldur is basically that is the beginning of the War of the Ring. That's the moment when Sauron is preparing to declare himself. He's going to kind of come out of the necromancer closet down there and he's going to, because of course when they when he leaves he's not going to be defeated. He's just going to move in, move back to Mordor, openly declare himself and set up shop. And, you know, now we're ready for the Lord of the Rings. Now we're ready to start the War of the Rings. So this is the first move in the War of the Ring. So in a, in, in a, in a very real way, in the, in the latter story, in the assimilated story, the whole quest for Erebor is, is really, it's, is, that's the sidebar now compared to the story with the necromancer. So therefore I don't think it could possibly be done. Um, in uh in in a in a 
flashback because yeah, it really is in some sense the whole focus right, of the story. The, it really is sort of the more I mean that's the thing that really frames the story and and roots it in the larger Lord of the Rings epic kind of story. Uh, yes. And and so that that is that is kind of an interesting thing that we've we've discussed a little bit before when talking about how much of the dwarves backstory will be presented. You know what? What is this really going to be a story about? Is it going to yes. be like the classic Hobbit? Is it going to be a story about a Hobbit going on a story uh, or on a journey that he didn't expect right. to go on and having adventures and all this stuff? Is it going to be a story that that tells us about the resolution of a long, um, um, uh, a long brooding conflict between the the dwarves and the and the goblins? As we've talked before, we think that that that's one route they'll go. That they'll really set this thing up as as the dwarves' final revenge against dragons and goblins and everybody else that's that's wronged them. Uh, or is this just really going to be about how did the, you know how did the the War of the Ring begin? How did Bilbo find the ring, and and what were the events that surrounded that? Um, is it really a story about the the origins of that? Is it a prequel story? And I think right. if they're going to do it as a prequel story, I agree that they really need to play up the necromancer Sauron element of it. And it's yeah. and, and it's yeah. clear that they're they're doing they're doing that at least some. I mean, the very fact that. Uh, Benedict Cumberbatch has been cast to voice the, the necromancer means um, he's going to be talking to somebody. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that is, and I, I, let me just, I think that is one of the, one of the least talked about most significant casting things. Like if I had to list like, you know, my top three most eye popping uh, casting decisions that would possibly be the top of my list. Like just wait, the fact that he was cast at all. Yes. Wait, Sauron gets lines in this film? <laughs> Are you kidding me? Really? I mean, that is I wow. <laughs> that is that is so much bigger than Toriel, I have to say. That is so much bigger than Toriel. Toriel is much less of a big deal. Toriel is just another example of one of those minor characters being elevated to a higher role like Haldir was. Yes, her gender is switched, and I know that that bothers people. It doesn't bother me particularly. I mean, he, he, he's going, he makes a lot of changes to these characters. Uh, you know, the fact that he makes one of them female so that we can get an actual woman on the cast and on screen, like, that it seems like a totally unshocking decision to make, and actually a far less invasive one than it could that it, in fact I can scarcely think of a less invasive way for him to have made uh, one of the one of the prominent characters in the story female so um, so no I actually don't think that that's very you know it's it's a huge deal at all but giving Sauron lines for crying out loud that's huge uh, you know not only for the fact I mean how many lines did Sauron get in the, in the Lord of the Rings yeah good point he had barely any yeah, I mean, with. yeah, no, I mean, and all he certainly we get... didn't have a he certainly didn't have a name brand actor playing. No, him. because it was all distorted. It was just like the I see you, <laughs> you know, like that's it. Like, did he say anything else? I don't remember him saying anything else. No. Uh, you know, so <laughs> like seriously, so so the fact that we're getting dialogue from him. You've just you know, been waiting to, to do that line. <laughs> I mean, it's so yeah. It's it, that's a huge deal. So I mean, because that tells us more than they're just expanding this. Um, if we're going to be seeing any of the, I mean, even you think of the stuff that we get from Saruman um, in the films. You know, all those kind of behind the scenes. You know, the like build me an. Uh, well, okay. Oh, hey, there we go. See, there's another Sauron line, right? 
Yes. Build me an army worthy of Mordor. Um, but anyway, so... Uh, it's, uh, but you know, with with Saruman, we get all these like you know him hanging out with his orc, uh, you know, genetic creations, and and uh, you know him with his crows, and um, you know looking pleased while the trees are being chopped down. Um, the idea that we're going to get any kind of behind the scenes, meanwhile, in Dol Guldur, like here's what <laughs> Sauron is doing. I, that's that's a huge deal. I mean, it's kind of. Uh, uh, in one way, it's, it was kind of a bad thing that the visual uh, path that Peter Jackson chose with Sauron was like just the flaming eye, um, so that so many people left the films believing that Sauron was actually incarnated in the form of an enormous glowing fireball. Um, which you know, they're gonna be very like, confused in this. Film. They're going to be very confused. Yes, exactly. Uh, so I, I think there was there were some negative consequences to that particular uh, uh, adaptation choice. But I can totally sympathize with it. You know, making him remote, showing you know the active presence of Sauron, visible from a distance and looking out across the thing, but not actually having you know showing like. And meanwhile, let's go backstage and sh- so show Sauron sitting in his study, you know, writing his memoirs. We don't quite get that with Saruman, but it's pretty close. Like, you know, like meanwhile, like Sauron is kicking back. Uh, I mean, like we don't we don't see that. We don't want to see that. <laughs> um, so I mean, I don't know what we're gonna get. I, I mean, I have no idea what what. Uh, Cumberbatch's lines are going to be, um, but uh, but wow! I mean that that is a big deal. But we should. Uh, I'm going to have to go to class pretty soon, so we should get to our actual prediction. Yes, I agree, um, and and also try to touch on a little bit on um, uh, the the other the, the previous Lord of the Rings film. So um, yes, yes. Okay, so prediction question. Uh, we although although we talked about the various kinds of reasons why the, the the split might be here or there and 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 refuse to ignore refuse to to 100% accept that it was a definitive thing that it was going to be in the barrel ride i think we generally sort of kind of agree that that this question is a little less interesting than it might be because of the proliferation of evidence uh, that it's going to be in the barrel ride. So what we thought we would ask instead um, for our prediction question is what will the tone of the ending of the first film be? Um, yes. And and what's cool about this is that um, this will allow people to uh, incorporate, if they happen to think that the ending will be someplace else, they can incorporate that into into this. So like... Um, option A is uh, suspense, that the, the, largely the tone of the, the ending will be one of suspense. It'll be sort of a cliffhanger type ending. Um, um, <clears throat> and, and if you happen to think that, for example, they'll actually, they'll actually end the first film with the capture of the dwarves by the elves, that would be sort of a suspenseful ending. I mean, not for anyone who actually knows the books, because we all know they escape, but it would be a suspenseful ending for the film. Right, right. Um, yeah, I mean, really, the, the question is, like, what what note is the film going to end on? Yes. Um, and it, we can go back and – we'll go back and we'll give illustrations of the different, uh, of the different uh, ideas. So let's make sure to go through them so we can keep track of them. So yep, yep. option A is suspense. Yep. Option B is hope and hope. relief. Um, option C is uh, foreboding. Foreboding, sort of, sort of omens and ominous, you know. Um, um, uh, and then option D is grief, 
uh, at maybe some particular loss. I'm not. We we. I don't know if we had a particular concrete thing in mind about what that might mean. Um, an example, but but option D is grief. So suspense, hope, foreboding, grief. Um, and here <laughs> now the key thing is it is the note that the film ends on. Yes. So you Just know, because instance, something sad happens doesn't mean that near it's the grief. end. Right. Exactly. So. Uh, so, for instance, uh, let's take as an illustration the end of the Fellowship of the Ring film. Yes. Okay? We have the note of grief with the death of Boromir and his funeral. Mm-hmm. We have uh, a note of hope in the uh, Frodo and Sam in the boat thing. Okay? Mm-hmm. But neither of those is the note that the film ends on. The film, the final thing that we are shown in the film is Frodo and Sam looking over the Emin wheel and seeing... The, uh, seeing Mount Doom in the distance. You know, the rumbling of Mount Doom in the distance. Mm-hmm. Therefore, I would categorize the ending of the Fellowship of the Ring film as foreboding. Uh, because the final note is like, look at the dread thing that lies before them. Um, so that's so, so we mean really the final note. Like, when it fades to black, what's the, la- what's the, what is the last thing that we are left with? So let's, um, um... To yeah. to give us more examples, let's talk uh, um, uh, two towers, or or and let's also let's also mention the books themselves. Um, uh, uh, the Fellowship of the Ring, even though the film ends on kind of a note of of uh, of foreboding and and sort of and it's kind of ominous that we feel that the 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 ending of the Fellowship of the Ring book is actually sort of ends more on the hopeful note because it really focuses on the fact that Sam and Frodo are together. Yes, and yeah, we yeah, haven't yeah. seen Boromir die yet because if that's uh, right, it, unless people exactly. have forgotten, that's actually the very start of uh, book three. Right. I mean, you could say. I mean, the last sentence of book two of the Fellowship of the Ring, that is, you know, the end of the volume, is then shouldering their burdens, they set off, seeking a path that would bring them over the gray hills of the Emin Wheel and down into the land of shadow. So you could say that that's ominous, but I think, you know, especially in the context of all of this, the two of them setting off together, um, I, I would classify this as as hope. Um, you know, that, that, because the emphasis is on the two of them going together. It is as if the film had ended right after the Frodo and Sam in the boat scene. Then I would have classified that as hope too. Book one of the Fellowship of the Ring, however, and this is one of the other things that Tolkien does do, is end his book, uh, with, his books with suspense. I mean, the, the last two sentences are, this is Frodo at the ford, uh, of Bruinen, of course, right? As he's arriving in Rivendell. Then Frodo felt himself falling, and the roaring and confusion seemed to rise and engulf him together with his enemies. He heard and saw no more. That's suspense. We don't know what happened to Frodo and whether even he's alive or not. Right. So, um, clearly that's suspense. The same thing with the end, the very end of the Two Towers book. Where, uh, you know, Frodo was alive, but taken by the enemy. When, you know, Sam, uh, you know, realizes that Frodo's alive, but he's, he's, he's off in the tower now. Again, suspense. What's gonna happen to Frodo? He's been captured by the orcs. Um, and this is, of course, this was quite famous because there was a much bigger gap. Uh, between the publication of the two towers and the publication of the return of the king when it first came out because Tolkien was dithering over the appendices. Um, he wanted to include these appendices and the publishers were demanding them and he took forever doing them and the indexes and everything else. And he really wanted to do that properly because he was such a perfectionist. But meanwhile, uh, the reading public, which had already begun to just completely get swept up in the Lord of the Rings was dying, uh, because Frodo was, you know, Frodo was alive but taken 
by the enemy, and they had to wait for a long time to find out what happened to Frodo, and they were just absolutely... I mean, the letters he got during that time, would you please tell us what happened to Frodo? So anyway, suspense. So so th- those are those are clearly suspense yeah. moves. And um, uh, whereas the, the Two Towers film is, is because they don't even get to Shelob's lair, they end with um, Gollum sort of leading them toward the, the Mountains of Shadow. It, it's more of a foreboding ending. Um, yep. That, yep. That seems to be, uh, uh, it seems to be Peter Jack, and I think this informs what's going on. That seems to be Peter Jackson's preferred mode of operation. Um, uh, yeah, I mean it's clear, clear foreboding of the of the upcoming betrayal of Gollum. Yep, yep. Yeah. And, and I just to just to uh, cover all of our notes, we did mention the Deathly Hallows split. How we think that that is informative here that um, that that it it ends more on a note of sort of basically uh, it, it combines grief and loss with foreboding. Uh, it ends with Harry um, cradling the dead Dobby in his arms on uh, the beach near Shell Cottage. But it, what it what it also ends on is Voldemort grabbing the Elder Wand, which again is a moment of sort of not not suspense, but rather foreboding. Right, right, so. right. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. No, foreboding is 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 a popular one, yeah. but I mean, you could see. I mean, you can definitely see the especially if the split does turn out to be where people suspect it to be. I mean, I do think that there is, you know. A, a really good chance of there being a, a sort of a, a hopeful ending, you know, of like them emerging from the barrels and um, and stepping out a kind of a glimpse of Thorin coming into his own as is going to happen. You know, this I can, this I can imagine. Yep. Yeah. I, 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 I'm, I'm kind of torn on this. Yeah. And, and I, I mean, think a lot of it has to do with how certain things are presented. So, so I can imagine if they haven't done a lot of smog stuff on screen. I could imagine them ending this with them coming around to Bend, getting a glimpse of the, the, the Lonely Mountain, and Bilbo being like, oh man, there's a Lonely Mountain. And then them doing this sort of uh, zoom-in shot to the Lonely Mountain up to the maybe like the, the hidden tunnel and ending with like darkness and, a, and flame belching out of the darkness. Right. Uh, to, you know, just or to basically smoke be like, coming from the front gate or something like yeah, that. Exactly. So, that, so that basically the indication is next film is about the dragon. Right. Um, right. Somebody, somebody mentioned maybe they will end with, maybe they'll do a montage of shots. Maybe they'll do, um, um, the Lonely Mountain, maybe they'll do Dol Goldor. Uh, as Trish points out, maybe they'll switch to an image of um, goblins and wargs mustering in the Misty Mountains. Um, right. Uh, I, although that maybe that might ruin the, the surprise of that uh, goblin attack at the end of the film, so maybe they wouldn't do that. But, yeah, that's uh, another fascinating question for us to talk about next year, probably, yes. is how they're going to do... Are they going to try to replicate in any sense the surprise of that? Yeah. But anyway, yeah. But I, I think it's also equally likely that they will make it to the um to Lake Town and that the last shot could be Thorin stepping onto the stepping into town and and uh and sort of surveying his his old kingdom and announce, maybe even announcing himself to the people standing there. So Oh, yeah. Man, I okay. Know. Here, I, I I have a really comical suggestion. I don't think this is going to happen, but it would be a hilarious <laughs> inside joke. I would love this. Okay. I, I I don't I don't think it's a great idea, but it would be fantastic, and it would make me happy for the rest of my life. If the last line of the first film of The Hobbit was Thorin looking up towards the mountain and saying, "Well, I'm back." 
Huh? Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> I would love that. I would love that. I would. I would. I would give a standing ovation to that ending of the first film if that happens. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> that would be fantastic. I, I don't think it will happen, but I think it would be awesome if it did happen. So, should we add? Should we add a fifth option? Comic relief. Comic <laughs> relief. No, no, I don't think so. No, no. See, but that wouldn't be comic relief. That would be hope. Yeah. That would be hope. To, you know, there would there would be irony there, certainly. But uh, you know, in in with the uh, contrast that it invites to the quiet domestic scene, either at the end of the film or at the end of the uh, the Return of the King book. But nevertheless. Uh, it would also there would be a certain aptness to it. I mean, it would it certainly does capture an important element of the story and everything. There would be a kind of tra- uh, you know a, a, a heroic irony to it. So uh, no, no, no. I don't think it need be comic. I mean, I would laugh, but I would laugh in delight. Uh, I, I would be laughing with them, not at them. Um, uh, but anyway, as I say, I don't <laughs> honestly expect that. But that would be so cool. Anyway, <laughs> uh, so I mean, I think. You know, to me, my I, and I should I should go here in the next sixty to one hundred and twenty seconds. Yeah, yeah. but uh, um, I, I think my final vote would be for foreboding. Um, I, I I I see the thing. Honestly, the thing that gives me reservations about this is that it seems obvious. Um, you know that I would think that Peter Jackson would expect people to expect that, like close-up view of the mountain with steam emerging from the front gate or something with, uh, you know, sort of a dragonish, you know, hint at what is coming up. Um, you know, that, that's, that's kind of what I would expect him to expect people to expect. Um, it, it would be very much like how he ended the Fellowship of the Ring. Um, you know, with looking over Emin Wheel towards and, you know, seeing Mountain Doom glowing in the distance. Um, and so I think that for that reason... I could see him deliberately avoiding that ending and doing something different. So in some ways, like the very, the very sort of clear fitness and obviousness of that choice makes me uneasy, but, but uh, so as not to just like overthink things and uh, uh, psych myself out, I'll go with it anyway. Yeah. I think I'm gonna have to go with foreboding too. I, 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 I'm, I'm like my mind's fixated on this idea of a, uh, of them coming around the bend, seeing, seeing the lonely mountain, and then having just this final scene of like, you know, oh look, there's the mountain, and then dragon fire comes out of nowhere just to, to hint at the danger that awaits them. So I, I'm going with foreboding as well. So I, we both choose C. How boring. Yeah, I know, but see, as I say, like I, I could really see this. Don't you worry, know, Mark Fisher will choose you. <laughs> you know, that's but <laughs> although there really isn't, of course, this is this is like the one question that we've asked to which there is no. It's going to be just like the book answer. Yes, um, <laughs> we finally got him. <laughs> Anyway, okay, so we should, uh, uh, before we go, uh, we should uh, announce in our second half of this episode, as we said this is only the first part of our discussion of this, I want to focus more on the, uh, the, the, the White Council stuff and what, how exactly they're going to be interlacing these stories, because I think that's really 
the, one of the most open questions about the first film. Um, so we're, we'll be coming to revisit this stuff from that perspective primarily. And also, uh, we uh, hope to be joined by some special guests next time. We will have, uh, we'll get to listen to somebody besides me and Dave talk about this as we shall uh, uh, bring on one or two of our, of our, uh, uh, our, our partners. Um, to uh, to to uh, have a special discussion with us, so that should be great. I'm looking forward to that. Me too. Um, all right. Well, uh, I guess you better go teach. So uh, why don't you take us away? All right. Well, thanks everybody for listening as always, and Godspeed.